Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of TBD with Bill and Dan. And we are on a huge millennia, multi-mega-year timescale in this particular story. So it's a story that has a scale that is perhaps even grander than Asimov's Foundation series. It certainly does have that, that feel to it. So what are we talking about today? The story today would be Pots by C.J. Cherry, which probably ties with they for the shortest title of anything we've covered yet on this show. And for a title that is so short... Four letters long, like like we say, it, it's an epic tale. There's there's a lot of stuff going on here, and it's all about grand narratives, and it's all about cultural cultural identity, and there's a lot going on. And you might be wondering, as many of us always do, why the heck does C.J. Cherry spell her last name with an H? Do you know, Bill? I'm remembering. I'll tell you a if you don't. Vague story is it? Well, a vague story. I'm vaguely remembering a story. That's what it is more appropriate to say. Is it something like they were trying to make her sound Russian or something like that? No, uh, you're close. You're close. They decided that her last name, her full name is Carolyn Janice Cherry, not spelled with an H, by the way. But when she went to publish stories, they decided her name sounded too much like a romance novelist. Oh, that's right. And so therefore, they decided somehow sticking an H on the end of her name would, would somehow make her more legitimate, which seems <laughs> really odd. You know, there's just certain industries that, you know, the, the film and television and writing industry care a whole lot about names. But you know, I, I can't imagine you're going to Home Depot and you're saying, oh, Bill, your, your name just doesn't sound right for a Home Depot worker, but we'll stick a Q at the end and then you can work here. And you know, you'd be like, what? I'm going to replace the I in Bill with a Y and the S in Williamson with a Z, and I'll be all set. And you got to capitalize it at the very end. There we go. We're going to go for some tangents right out the door on this one. <laughs> That's right. So, so Jerry is one of those authors who I think I had primarily read fantasy stuff, or at least stuff that seemed to cross over more into the science fantasy realm than in the science fiction realm. And... This is a story that I hadn't read before we stumbled across it in the context of doing an episode for it. Yeah, she's been around for a long time. I mean, her, her oh, yeah. first stories, I think, were published in the 70s and uh, Hugo Award winners for, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Cassandra, I think, was her big short story that won, won the Hugo, which we're not covering. I, I don't know why, but we're going to do this one. That one might have even which, been as, her first st short story. It might have been. So yes, mm -hmm. Potts is the story. It was published in the After War Anthology in 1985, which doesn't really make it classic science fiction, but we're going to bend the rules a little bit. Well, sadly, at that, it's still almost 40 years old. <laughs> That's a short 40 years. <laughs> you, and she's talking about millions of years, so, so you know. Yeah, what's 40 years, give or take, in a, in a million year or five or 8.25 million year time scale, as I think the story is set on? So give us an introduction to the characters. Uh, character introduction, yes, one of our favorite segments. Uh, we we have a few that are relevant. There's, I, I think, actually, I think there's only three in this particular story. Uh, the first one is a guy by the name of Desan Das. He's a Lord Navigator title. It's always cool when you can put the word Lord in front of your title. You'd be Lord Professor at your university, <laughs> Bill. That's right. Um, 
he is a, a Lord Navigator, which apparently means he flies ships around the universe. Uh, we have Dr. Gothan, who is the head of a archaeological research station, um, and is apparently, at least the way I read it, is somewhere around 250,000 years old, although she spent a whole lot of time in, I guess, stasis. Yeah. Then you've got another person working at this station, uh, Dr. Bothagi Nan. He's a zoologist, a life scientist. Doesn't have a big role, but um, if he's not there, then you had only two characters. So, oh, I guess there's one other guy by the name of Dr. Kagate or something like that. Very bit player. So, probably won't even mention him. And what's interesting about most of these characters, well, most of the characters that we meet that that are given names, whether or not they play a role that's significant enough for us to list them, is that anybody of importance in this society at this point, at the at the point in the storyline where we are engaging with the characters, most yeah. of them are clones. The Lord Navigator right. is the fifth Lord Navigator. Uh, his sixth has been born and is in the in the process of being prepared which is, you know, being educated or whatever. Dr. Gothen has multiple clones, but none of them have been awakened because she is still the original. And as you said, has has spent a significant portion of the last 250,000 years in stasis or cryosleep, whatever it is that they use. And they awake her periodically when there's an important development in the research that she's doing. Yeah, they, um, they've apparently been on this, this mission and they capitalize it, the mission, the journey, whatever, for at least, you know, this span of time, whether or not they've been awake this whole time doing it or whether they've spent lots of time in transit, not really spelled out in the story. But uh, anyway, th this mission they're on has been going on a really long time and uh, we're kind of at the very tail end of it. And the mission, so says as the story opens, Dasan is on his way back to... A, a, planet a planet that is identified as as a home world or potentially the home world, and he has been off on this multi-year, multi-galactic, well, really multi-generational expedition on a quest to discover human life scattered throughout the well, cosmos. Not necessarily human life, but some life. Right. They're, they're looking for life wherever they can find it because they're trying to find, well, we're not really sure. They, one theory says that that they're trying to look for their progenitors, their ancestors. Another one, you know, my personal theory is they found this thing out in space. They're trying to track down who made it. But you know, either one of those theories is still valid for reading the story. One of the things that's important to note, well, it, it, it's a side note that seems important enough to note, is that there's only one other planet that they've stumbled across, which they refer to as Planet 4, that also has some artifacts that are relevant to the cause, or to the cause, to the relevant to the mission, but there is only a passing mention made of that. Right. So, so Dasan, as, as Bill just said, he shows up at this, at this planet. Oh, well, spoiler alert, it's Earth. At least we think it's Earth. It, all the evidence in the story points to it. They might as well just call it Earth. Right. Um, all, it's, it's never really spelled out, but it's pretty much inferred. Uh, so, so he shows up on the planet. Uh, he, the, the planet is, is millions of years old. It's, it's arid. It's dry. It's desolate. There's almost nothing left on it except for these archaeologists and their research station. 
And he's basically, like I said, he's come back from this mission. He's going to to meet the researchers, and apparently, it's for kind of like a it's like a staff meeting, right? You know, he's back from his mission. He's checking in with everybody at the station to kind of see what's been going on while he's been gone. And there's a little bit of a hint given that there's a there's some sort of a tension that has come up surrounding the researchers, and he has been sent along to kind of gauge where they are at. Whatever that might mean, it's all it's all very, you know, sort of mild hand wringing at the beginning and, and cryptic, and and you know, all of his dialogue is in his head because all of the all of the the whatever you want to call them, all of the characters that he's interacting with are artificial intelligences, little service robots, and so on that are shuttling him along until he can meet up with the um, with the research team. So he does eventually, you know, go through his little arrival cycle, heads out to the station, starts to meet the arrival team. And uh, one of the first people he meets is Gothan, who apparently is this very venerated figure because she's been around, again, as I said, for a quarter million years, extremely well known. And he's all kind of awestruck that that she's the one that he's actually going to meet. And she, because... She is a researcher. I think that's part of her veneration and, and her status in, within the civilization. But I think the other comes from the fact that she is an original, that she is she is Gothen Prime. Yeah, she remembers the home world, as they say. Yeah. And, and that's where they say if a quarter million years ago, that's what she remembers, which is interesting. So along the way, um, she's, she's giving him a tour of the facility but it's not really a, a tour per se. There, there's a there's a very specific kind of pathway that they go through, rooms with skulls from animals and um, uh, and from humanoids, which we take to be humans, but but they may or may not be humans. And she's explaining different things along the way, and there's all these researchers that they keep interacting with in in sort of in passing. But along the way, we get this, we begin to build toward her version of. Of the or her interpretation of the data that they've been gathering as their research team, and that that version of the story challenges the civilization's master narrative or grand narrative about their origins and their identity. Yeah, they, you start getting all these little hints about you know these ideas are heretical or, or blasphemous almost. Not that that it's a religion these people are following, but it's you know kind of their civilization's guiding principle that for at least at least this group of people um it is kind of interesting they do make a reference in the story that they've been gone from their home world for 250,000 years they don't even know if their home world still exists they don't know whether there are still people on it they don't know whether they've you know evolved beyond them or remember them or or anything right they've been gone so long they have no clue what's happened to their home world so you get the idea that the people that are on this mission they're kind of this little self-contained population that's been been working on this problem for years, and the, this this problem of what to of of finding people or or finding these races that they're looking for has is it consumes their entire existence, right? It's their only reason for being. It's evolved into the most basic principle, the most deeply held belief that we're going to find these individuals <clears throat> that that sent this this plaque, this tablet on a spacecraft out into the middle of space where they somehow found it. It's actually, it sounds a whole lot like the Pioneer 10 plaque. Again, you know, I'm 99% c- 
convinced it's Earth, but right. hey, unless there's other civilizations out there sending plaques on tiny little spacecraft with two people and a map back to their their home world, uh, it seems to me a lot like it's Earth. The, the point of contention becomes, did the people who lived on this planet, Earth, did they, did they escape and populate the stars? Uh, because there's obviously some destruction that's happened to their planet. It's this desolate, barren wasteland. Um, or did they not escape the destruction of their planet? And, and the prevailing narrative has always been that they, they escaped to the stars and the mission has been to trace their journey and to find the places where they settled or where they you know, continued their civilization. And what Gothen is saying... Yeah, they've really, they've really put this, this civilization on a pedestal, right? It's like they're, they, they're infallible, they're the ancients, they're all-knowing, they are just, you know, the cat's pajamas as far as this, this group of people are concerned. And what Gothen has, is presenting is that based on the archaeological evidence, that what they have discovered is that this world, um, when we should note that it is, it has, it bears the the scar of a very large asteroid having struck the the planet's surface. So it left it, it left the entire planet deformed. So there's a, this massive, massive crater, and the the assumption has always been at least according to the mission's narrative, is that that asteroid strike was the, was the, the catalyst for the end of the civilization and that the, that's the cataclysm that they escaped from. And what Gothen's team is suggesting instead is that the race never made it that far, that they had destroyed themselves before the asteroid ever struck. Yeah, and they really kind of get to this in a very kind of roundabout, hint-dropping way and you keep seeing Dasan's kind of reaction to this, like, what are they saying? Are they saying what I think they're saying? If they are, then, you know, this is, you know, new evidence that could just upset the entire foundation of their civilization to think that these people they've been searching for for so long and have held in such high regard were just dumb enough to destroy themselves in a nuclear war and never achieved interstellar travel. Yeah, and and Gotham is well. Her whole team is is basing their presumption or or their their um, interpretation, I should say, of the data on the fact that they they determined that all of the major population centers on the planet were eliminated at the same time, and that their technology and the the, the pot shards, so to speak, only progress to a certain moment in time, and then they don't progress any further. And there's no evidence that they continue to advance technologically, that they continue to advance culturally or anything else. They're just wiped out and and that that event happened prior to the strike of the asteroid. And you see Dasan, you know, he's trying to wiggle out of this logic trap while he's talking to him. You know, they're saying, hey, uh, you know, we don't see this race having developed any of these exotic materials that we have that, you know, are so much more durable and would last so much longer. And and it sounds like, well, maybe they invented something else. You know, maybe it was something that, you know, decomposed so so rapidly that we can't find traces. He's like, you know, you can see his mind we you know, you know, spinning, trying to find ways to to keep the story on track from what he believes is the correct narrative. Well, and the big conversation has happened behind closed doors, so to speak, in 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 a very specific context. The um, Go- Dr. Gothen has has steered the conversation into a room that is protected from the prying eyes and the prying ears, I suppose, of the artificial intelligence of the service robots. And the Lord Magistrates. Or is that Lord's Magistrate? 
Yes, that's exactly it. That the, the service robots have a direct link to the Lord's Majesty. There are five of them. Yeah, and they're kind of like the rulers of the society, as far as I can tell. But or they are the rulers of this space station, which represents their society, which is you know floating above Earth. And these you know Lords Magistrate are. I get the feeling they're they're kind of pulling all the strings. Yeah, and you made the the parallel or the or the comparison that that this whole narrative sounds like a spiritual kind of thing that it's sort of a has has a religious awe about them. And in going along with that same metaphor, the Lord's magistrate would definitely be the high priests of this culture then. And so they are the power center and it is in their best interests that the narrative that they have perpetuated for all of these eons and eons and generations of their people that that's the narrative that continues. Yeah, so so needless to say, you know, Dasan he eventually comes around to the archaeologist standpoint and he's like he seems to be a little bit more flexible than, you know, his peers up on the space station and he he basically says, "Yeah, you know, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes all these years and we we need to do something about it." You know, they come up with this plan where whereby he's going to launch his the ship he came down in, he's going to launch it back into space where it will somehow connect with the satellite network and and get the word out about the the truth of the situation. And he's hoping that when he launches his shuttle up into into space, that his faith in the Lord's magistrate is going to be well-placed and that they aren't going to see this as a threat. But of course he's wrong. Well, or his intuition is that they will see it as a threat, but he doesn't want to believe that that's true. Yeah, like you just said, he doesn't believe they're a threat, but the the researchers on the planet, they're a little bit more pragmatic about the whole their whole thing. And they say things like, oh, what if an asteroid just happens to be aimed at the planet and obliterates everything here? And, and if that happens, all the evidence we've gathered would be destroyed and they could just move along and continue the narrative as, it, as it's always been for all these thousands of years. And, and Dasan, it sounds like he, he can't believe it at first, but he eventually does come around to, to believing that that's actually a possibility that these large magistrate could really have it in for all the people who are, are doing the work on the planet. And so just in case he has prepped his ship that if if they wind up being attacked down on the planet, that the the ship will broadcast the message that the Lord's Magistrate have perpetuated a treachery or have perpetrated a, a treachery and, and and that things are are not going well. And and that's essentially what happens. The shuttle breaks through the atmosphere, sends its broadcast. And then the the robot servants on the planet side that are controlled by the Lord's Magistrate and the space station begin to attack the core systems of the research centers. They knock out the air and, and they begin attacking other vital systems. And it begins this little battle. And one thing to kind of keep in mind here is, is Dasani, he's a little different from all these other people that are on the space station. He's been commanding all these ships you know, flying around and, and investigating different planets and They've, you know, they're equipped for war and conflict and, you know, he's a veteran of a couple of these. So he's got some idea of, of war and tactics where it sounds like the, you know, obviously the archaeologists don't have a whole lot of background in it. Sounds like the Lord's Magistrate are kind of the, as you said, the high priests or the lead bureaucrats. They're not very well versed in war either. So, so Dasan, he's kind of got a, an angle that he can use his knowledge to help the archaeologists in a way that probably nobody else can. 
And he helps them craft some crude weapons, kind of makeshift on the fly kinds of things to fight off the robots. And and they are generally successful at doing so. And the message gets out. Um, and, and the battle, there isn't a whole lot of detail about it. It isn't the most exciting. Of, it, it's of pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> and it basically comes down to... Um, you know, the Lord Navigator directing the actions of the research teams, the, the the younger people that are that are running around it, and most of it relies upon them drawing the attention of the robots to keep them from attacking critical systems. And then once they're distracted, they try to disable the robots. Yeah. So at the very end, right, we have this you know really kind of brief little war. Um, the Dasan and the archaeologists win somehow. It's really not you know really not detailed how, but. Apparently, all the Lord's magistrates are are eliminated, um, and the Dasan takes over. The apparently, even though these Lord magistrates are are dead, they all have clones. But they're like, yeah, let's not wake those guys up yet till we figure out what the heck we're gonna do. Um, as they try to figure out, like, what you know, now that we've found this new information, this new data, you know, how do we, you know, change the narrative? How do we change the structure of our society? to to handle this new information and yet still, you know, have some kind of, of relevance. And so what winds up happening is that as the story works toward its conclusion, the Lord Navigator has prepped to embark once again on the mission, but the mission has changed a little bit. They're still looking for these people that have, he wants to believe that people escaped Earth and he still wants to to seek evidence of their existence wherever they might have found themselves scattered across the universe and that's you know that that's how he's going to continue that quest for knowledge but also that quest into the stars that, that sort of that that grand narrative of exploration and meanwhile on on planet earth they're going to continue to dig they're going to continue to process information but gothan believes that she has already found her destiny, so to speak. She's already found the end of her journey. And so she's just going to continue to work and work and learn. Yeah. They, they make a reference to, I think it's Gothan who says, you know, you, you can go out there and look for the descendants of the people on this planet. But, you know, in truth, you know, this, this race, they never even really say what the, what the name of their race is anywhere that I've been able to determine. So, um, but their race is, you know, they are the, you know, spiritual descendants of these people from this planet and you know you know you uh Dasan, you can go look for whatever you want but uh we're the we're the real legacy of these people and in you know the fact that they found this this probe this plaque they uh, the, the mission to find the the creators or the ancients as they call them you know all of that has has made them what they are today which makes them you know in effect the descendants of of this planet which I still say is Earth. You can disagree, but uh, no, I agree. That, that's where I think this is going. Well, and in turning to the story itself, the, there's a final exchange between Dasan and, and Gothan, and, um, per, and and it reads, perhaps then Dasan said in turn, "We'll find the track. We'll find the track leads home again. Perhaps we are their children, eight and a quarter million years removed." And then she responds, "Oh, ye makers of myths." Do your work, space fear. Tangle the skein of legends. Teach fables to the races you meet. Brighten the universe with them. I put my faith in you. Don't you know, this world is all I came to find, but you, child of the voyage, you have to have more. For you, the voyage is the mission. Goodbye to you then. Farewell. 
you they, they they have both come to a place where they're like oh my my world is fulfilled because i still have something to do and and my narrative makes sense to me and my narrative makes sense to others and therefore they get to both continue their journeys and i'd say that pretty much wraps up the whole story yeah so well, yeah what are we what are we supposed to take away from this story i mean there there's a few themes running through it right you know, one of the first ones that I I picked up on is, you know, the whole idea that in this, you know, little closed society, information is the power structure. That, you know, the people who control the information are the people who 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 control everything else. These large magistrate, in my opinion, like I said, they're, you know, they're running the show, they control who knows what and who finds out about what, and they will do whatever is necessary to maintain their position in power. And if that means suppressing the truth, then so be it. And the information that they want to maintain is information, or, or the information that they want to privilege, I should say, is any kind of knowledge that supports the existence or the perpetuation of this grand narrative that they are exploring the universe, looking for the ancients or evidence of the ancients, and that that gives them a sense of purpose. And as long as they have that sense of purpose, and as long as they are the people who are the controllers of that narrative, then they are the ones who have power, and they are the ones who get to dictate where do resources go, and who remains in power, and who gets to be cloned, and therefore who gets to be carried on. You know, that's that's a pretty interesting and odd way of carrying on somebody's personal gene pool is through cloning, and yet it makes sense. I mean, it's, they're, they're really perpetuating their power from the original ruling class. It's sort of a, the, this, I won't say hereditary because they're, they're, they've made themselves. Yeah, it's not a caste system. No, but it, it's, it has the feel of being a monarchy. But, you know, your clone could be born into, or born, I guess, into the same job that their clone had before them. It never really, they never really talked too much about how many people are in the society. They make, I think at one point a reference to there's 70 different ships. They started out with five. Now there's 70 of them, but we don't know how big they are, how many hundreds or thousands are on each one, but it seems to be a pretty large and pretty well-organized society that's cruising around, you know, going on about this mission. However far they are scattered across the universe, however many galaxies they might, you know, have outposts on or whatever the case may be, they all are are kind of driven by or controlled by this core unit of people, the Lord's Magistrate and the Lord Navigator. And you get a little bit of, you know, you, you can take away part of the story to look at it as kind of a science versus religion debate. You know, if you look at those people who believed in things like the conflict thesis, you know, with the Catholic Church suppressing science and all that stuff, which, you know, people probably still believe, but it's pretty much been, you know, thoroughly debunked over time. This is almost, in some respects, reads like that, where you've got the the head of the society, the re- pseudo-quasi-religious society, suppressing the information, and that that's certainly one way of looking at it. And to that point, that as well, talking about the difference between science and religion, you've got the grand narrative that's passed on as... Well, as a narrative, as, as sort of an oral history, so to speak, although it's almost sure. an ideology. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Where and, and, and anything that challenges it is going to be heresy. And of course, science is based on observation, not on prior narratives. 
So although science itself is socially constructed and is built on its own understanding and the knowledge that it builds through generations, in this particular case, the scientists look at the data that they have uncovered as irrefutable that the grand narrative is wrong. And the people who are responsible for maintaining the grand narrative look at anything that challenges it as it has to be wrong because the story has always been the story and it's been there for a quarter of a million years, so it must be right. And as the great Upton Sinclair said back in 1934, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And I think in this case, you could just replace the word salary with, you know, position of power and you've got the same idea. And as Mr. Creech, my high school social science instructor used to say, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts, which of course he said of people who would dispute things like this, not of himself. So overall, right, I mean, one thing that I kind of have an issue with in this story is like so many other science fiction stories, this is almost, you know, take a human narrative, take a human problem, slap a few, you know, alien references on it, and and make it into a science fiction story because quite honestly all of these characters all look act talk like humans right the only the only difference you get anywhere is they make some reference to the guy waddling from place to place and if you just replace that word walking you could just have all these aliens replaced with humans it would be the exact same story right you could almost make this entire story about humans being on another planet for, you know, some race we were looking for, and it would be the exact same story. They, they have what some reference where they say they drink tea. Like, okay, the, <laughs> the aliens are completely alien, but we sit around, we, we complain about the same stuff, we have the same power dynamics, and we, you know, still both drink tea. So it's, it's really hardly an alien story at all. I assume that, that, that he was waddling because of the, the suit, the, the like protective suit that he was wearing was awkward. And, and so I, I always assumed that he was human. Oh, that, that could very well be. Um, it's never really said, stated what they are, what they look like, but they sure seem awful human to me. Well, and that's what I was going to say to in, in, in response to what you were talking about there is that um, in addition to like pulling some human details into the narrative, you obscure a few of the details and hint that it might be the humans that we're talking about. And of course, you leave that doubt. And if we were making a movie of it, then, you know, somewhere along the lines, there'd be the big reveal that it would actually be the plaque from the, from Pioneer or, or something like yeah. that. And again, like I said, not that they say it's Earth, but it's okay. It's got a moon, one moon. It's only the moon has a few minor trinkets of civilization on it. Uh, they send out space probes with gold plaques with two, you know, bipo- bipedal beings with a map to their home planet and you're you're like okay this sounds a whole lot like earth so what's going on here right and whether it is or whether it isn't it at least leaves open the implication that it could be and and it's clear then that we're supposed to be thinking something about this and what are we supposed to be thinking well the story was published in 1985 when we were facing a significant threat from atomic annihilation or nuclear annihilation on our planet. You know, the, the bulletin of atomic scientists has always made, well, has maintained the doomsday clock since, was it 1947 or 1957 or something like that? And at the time that Cherry was writing the story, it read three minutes to midnight, meaning that we were 
pretty close to impending doom where we were going to blow each other up, blow ourselves up in the process through nuclear war. What's the cataclysmic event that destroys civilization in the context of the story? It's nuclear war. So we didn't live long enough for the asteroids to take us out like the dinosaurs. Instead, we blew ourselves up with bombs. And if you want to sleep better at night, you, know, you can know that the doomsday clock, as opposed to three minutes back in 1985, is now at 100 seconds. So <laughs> we've done some significant progress in the last you know, 35, 40 years. Well, and sadly... Push that sucker to zero eventually. We made ourselves look a little more humane and a little more logical and, we, and according to the scientists, actually reduced the threat. I forget how, how good it got, but it was... It was at least a few minutes away, but yeah, in our in our recent buildup of testosterone and stupidity, we've brought it closer to to midnight. I blame the internet. Yeah, well, so why not? Well, the clock is out on the internet too now. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah, like everything else is. So, so a couple other things, like like as you just said, it, the story was 1985. Not a whole lot of anachronistic things you're going to find. I, I had a few issues with this story the first time I read it, specifically with the time scales. You know, they make reference to to the the you know this I'm going to call it the Pioneer spacecraft. Yep, being in space for something like five million years, right? And then they make reference to the the Earth being or the the sites that they're investigating being eight and a quarter million years old. Which seems odd because they, you know, they say the probe was launched at the same time civilization collapsed. So I'm not sure which is the right number, whether it's eight, eight and a quarter, or five million years. But anyway, I'm thinking, you know, after five million years, is that probe going to be recognizable in space, really? And these you know, artifacts on the moon, and they make some reference to the fact that they put flags on the moon. <clears throat> yeah, probably another reference <laughs> to the Earth. And I mean, and that there was you know, cloth and symbols and whatnot. Well. Yeah, if you if you actually look at the flags on the moon, they put six of them up. A couple of them, some of them are still standing, but they've been bleached, you know, bone white by by radiation and by extreme heat and cold cycles. Um, and they were made of rayon. It cost NASA five dollars and fifty cents for each flag when they first bought them. So you know they they weren't really built to last. So the fact that that a flag would be you know still still on the moon in some type of of recognizable form after you know x, x million years is kind of ludicrous yeah even if like things aren't going to decay as much because there aren't weather patterns like we would have on earth it still suggests yeah that they probably would have decayed by then yeah but as it turns out there are people on certain corners of the internet who like such things and they calculated that the the gold plaques on the pioneer 10 spacecraft in fact would probably last somewhere between two and 20 million years and they might not be recognizable you know they they may be illegible but they could probably last you know maybe five billion years i was i was kind of impressed by that what's the margin of error on those calculations uh between two and two and 20 million years actually they <laughs> said the stuff on the moon would be between 10 and 100 million years so before it was completely gone yeah that's interesting yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I found that to be interesting. I thought it would have gone away a long time before that. But then the other problem with the story, of course, is that you know the Pioneer Ten spacecraft, it's not going real fast. It's going about you know seven and a half miles a second. So in five billion years, it's only going to have gone maybe three hundred light years from here. Which you know it's a, it seems like a respectable distance, but it's going in a straight line. Who knows how many stars 
were there. You know, how they found this thing in the first place is, is you know, never really talked about. But, you know, as Douglas Adams said, space is really, really, really big. <laughs> and finding this like tiny spacecraft made of, you know, a chunk of metal with no power source in the middle of interstellar space after five million years seems a little bit far-fetched. Hey, the the aliens found it in the first Star Trek movie, so it's got to be plausible, right? Oh, uh, I would, you had to bring a feature up, didn't you? <laughs> I, I have the same issue with all of the various science fiction shows that use, you know, the Pioneer 10 spacecraft as the map back to Earth. I see. The other thing I thought was interesting was, you know, the fact that they said they've been they're looking for these artifacts on Earth. They're finding, you know, skyscrapers on their side and the remains of dams after eight million years, and I was like. Really? I, you know, given tectonic activity and everything else, I don't think those things could last that long either. But then I, I, of course, did a little bit more digging and found out that the oldest artifacts that we've been able to find on this planet are 3.3 million years old. That's I mean, pretty old. stone tools. Yeah, it, it's weird. It's like they actually predate Homo sapiens arising on this planet. So there were, there were tools created by the, the precursors to you know, modern day humans that we can still find after 3 million years. There's mention of the pyramids having lasted, well, or of pyramids, maybe not the the pyramids, although yes, we'll take it to be earth. But that, I thought that was interesting. So the the, the site that they are at used to be a dam. So yeah, some, I'm thinking Hoover Dam. Well, that's sort of, it made me wonder as well, especially given that the, you know, the big lake and it's in the desert. And all the, of course, it's far enough in, in the future that anything could have been desert or not at that point. Uh, but yeah, the, the making reference to dams scattered around the planet and pyramids scattered around the planet, those are certainly structures that at least the pyramids have st- stood for quite a long time. You know, even a few thousand years is nothing compared to five million. Right. But And actually, that's something else that I was going to say is that it's always one of those details that I find interesting about science fiction stories where if they want to obscure the connections to our current time we cast something millions and millions of years into the future and so we've already had a few stories that have made reference to to such things you know in in mimsy where the boar goes the 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 dude um i can't think of his name now who sends the toys back through time what their horston is that his name like yeah, he, something he's like that millions of years in the future and what was the other story that, that made similar reference to events being millions of years in the future? I mean, so th- this this kind of a time scale is a standard kind of thing in science fiction. So overall, you know, looking at this story, uh, if you want to put this thing on our, our good old uh, scale of, hmm, whoa, and what the fuck, you know, what's, what's your read on this one, Bill? I think we're supposed to come away from it thinking about ourselves. We're supposed to come away from it thinking about the possibility of our future and so on. Um, you know, would we ever become the subject of someone else's religion? I don't Ooh, that know. Sounds like that sounds like a story we're going to do later on in the series. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a story that I think for me primarily falls on the scale. It, it doesn't have a whole lot of, whoa, I never would have thought of that. And there's certainly for me isn't much of a what the fuck kind of thing going on here. So I, I think it's 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 more or less a, a chin scratcher. Yeah, mm, is about the same place I would put it. Yeah, there there's no big punch like you're like, oh, that's super cool. 
you know, it's a good story. It's it's written well. You know, C.J. Cherry's a great writer. Um, and it really, it's not surprising that she did write this story. I mean, she was a, a teacher of history. You know, she spent a lot of time in archaeological sites. You know, to to have a story like this come out of out of uh, you know her little bucket of ideas it makes makes a lot of sense. Well, and I like it that there's so much science fiction, and this is a great example of it that chooses to celebrate the mundane and and to to look for value in in the way that we think and the way that we the way that we construct our our stories about ourselves. You know, there, there's all that science fiction that's like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. This is not one of those stories that relies on the imagining of things being radically different. It's a story that re- relies on us kind of carrying forward our own narrative and seeing where it might go. And 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 like I said, that, that sense of mundaneness, I think, is a really wonderful way of building a narrative. Well, I mean, that's yeah, that's reflected in the actual title, right? Pots. Oh, yeah. Right? How do you, you, you can't get more, more mundane than that, right? We've been... You know, analyzing clay pots from an archaeology perspective for you know, years. It is the standard by which we've, you know, done this investigation into ancient cultures, and the fact that they're using, you know, the most you know utilitarian object possible as the title of the story. I think that that really underscores what you just said. And I think that's part of what makes the story an interesting read is that. And in that regard, it is. I mentioned Isaac Asimov's Foundation series right at the right at the outset, and which they're busily screwing up on. <laughs> on is it Apple TV that that's on right now? I forget which one. Whoever it is, yeah, it it has been getting decidedly mixed reviews. That's for sure. And you know what he's trying to do is talk about you know th- this this grand scope. Uh, you know the, this incredibly space opera. Yes, there you go. But it's it, it's the foundation and the the construction of a civilization. You know, and and that's not necessarily all amazing stuff. You know, sci-fi, especially the stuff that's in cinema, is often reduced to aliens and wars or wars with aliens. And this is stuff that isn't. It's it's about the daily stuff. Well, speaking of grand narratives and stories that become the foundations for spirituality, we've got a story for you. Yeah, it's probably by an author you're not real familiar with. It's a guy by the name of Jerome Bixby, and the story we're going to look at next time is called Old Testament. Make sure you come on back. We'll see you then. <laughs>